Welcome to Midweek, a place where we dive deep into Scripture. So grab your Bible, a pen, and a notebook, and get ready to study God's Word. All right, here we go. In John chapter 4, we're going to go through John chapter 4, 30 to, verse 30 to 54. I know some of you think and you'll never make it. I'm going to make it, okay? I will cover all that territory tonight. We're going to finish off. Uh, the Samaritan woman story and then move into the royal official in, in, the, in the sequence there. Uh, we've covered three weeks of the Samaritan uh, woman and now we're going to finish it off. So <clears throat> she has just left. Let's pick up where we left off. She's just left Jesus and she's going to the town to her Samaritan friends and she's going to tell them all about what Jesus said about her, what Jesus has done. She's going to tell them everything. And remember, she leaves behind what as she goes? The water pot. So that's really a picture of her leaving behind her shame, is it not? Because she's not coming. She she left what she came for. She left behind what she came for because she found something better. Now think about this. She's going to reach an entire region for Jesus Christ. A region, guys. Now think about who she is and reaching this region. She's a woman who was an outcast, correct? Correct. She's a woman who's a five-time loser in marriage, possibly, correct? You know, maybe one or two died, but, you know, five-time loser. She's a woman who up until about 30 minutes ago or an hour ago, she was living with a man, right? And she's a woman that nobody's going to talk to. She's coming at noon all by herself. The ladies don't hang out with her. So this woman is, her life is broken. It's a mess, and she finds Jesus Christ, and she heads and God's going to use her to reach an entire region. Is that amazing? Is that amazing or what? I think it's, it's incredible. Now think about that. She goes back to town and she's going to go tell the men or the women. What does it say? It says the men. Now haven't men always been her problem? And now she's going to go tell the men all, all these things right there. So here we find this woman now. She's going to go tell the very people who were probably once her trouble in life. And now they're her target for evangelism is who she's going to go after now. So it's a great story. Now, where we pick up now is the disciples are coming back from going to buy food. She has left to go tell the rest of Samaria. So there's like this parentheses in the middle of the story where she's gone. And now we pick up the disciples. She's going to come back with the crowd. But right now, Jesus and the disciples are going to dialogue. And he's going to use this whole... uh, um, interaction he had with the woman and what's going on as an example for them and as an example for us. I got four points, a lot of bullets in there, and then we get to the royal official. We're going to just drive it all the way home with no points on that one. So number one in your notes, and that's this. Real food is spiritual food. Amen to that one? Now, real food is spiritual food. Now, let me read John 4 and verse 30 to 33, and it says this. They went out of the city and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. And he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. Verse 33. So the disciples were saying to one another, no one brought him anything to eat, did he? Now, the townspeople at this time are traveling back to see and hear Jesus because a Samaritan woman has told them all about this Jesus guy. While they're coming back, the disciples have now arrived, and they brought the food. They brought the pepperoni pizza and garlic bread, right? So it's going to be a really good meal. So how many like to eat? 
Amen. Okay. Jesus is going to have food there, but he's going to turn down the food. How many have ever turned down food? I don't think any of us. No, anyway, just observational. But anyway, so they bring the food that they bought. They come back because remember, they were all hungry, correct? When they get back with the food to Jesus and they give it to Jesus, does Jesus eat? No, he doesn't. He never touches the food. And he's not hungry. And so the disciples begin to question with one another. And what do they question? Did you bring him food? Did you bring him? I didn't bring him food. Did you bring him? No, I didn't bring him food either. Who brought him food? No one brought him food. Question. Jesus, at the beginning of the Samaritan woman interaction, he asked, what's the first question he asked her? Give me a what? Give me a drink, right? So he's thirsty also, correct? Remember I said this last week with the question. Do we find in the story that Jesus ever drank water? He never drank water. And then they go for food, and he never eats food. That's a really interesting uh, thing to me because what's going on with Jesus? Because he wanted water, he wanted food, and now we find that he says here in verse 32, I have food to eat that you do not know about. That's interesting. I don't need your food, and I don't need your water, because I have food that you don't know about. Bullet point in your notes. The Word of God is more important and more satisfying than any physical need. Correct? Correct. Jesus always gives evidence of what he's saying. Remember, when he interacted with the Samaritan woman, he tells her, he says, Woman, he who drinks of this water shall what? You're going to thirst again. So the Samaritan woman, if anybody knows that uh, the real food is the spiritual food, it's the Samaritan woman now, right? Because she leaves and she don't take the water back. She understands exactly what Jesus is saying. And she understands it to the point, well, let me say, we should understand that man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God, correct? And so we see the spiritual hunger is, spiritual craving is the most important. That's why people get themselves all caught up in so many things and addictions and this and that because they're trying to meet a spiritual need with physical things. Amen to that one? And once we understand that, and once we walk in spiritual things and start realizing it's the word of God that our soul needs, you're going to see a lot of desires and addictions just drop off life because you're meeting it with the proper food. Now, the second bullet point is this. The servant of Christ has food that the non-engaged know nothing about. The non-engaged know nothing about the food that he has. Now, this is evidenced by Jesus. He doesn't eat food, and he doesn't drink any of the water. And he says, look, verse 34, he says this. Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who what? Sent me, and to accomplish his work. Now, what does he mean by that? He's saying, my food is to carry out or be in obedience in serving God, the Father. So specifically, he has been sent, operating the will of the Father, but what specifically was the will of God in this story? Do you remember what he said in the very beginning, what it said? He said, I must travel through Samaria. Do you remember that statement? So that's the specific will of God in the moment as he's traveling there, and he's carrying out this specific will of God. So he's a sent servant to reach lost people. He understands that. 
we should understand that we are sent servants. Now, flipping your Bible over to John chapter 6, we're always going to come back to our text, but look what Jesus says in John chapter 6, because it's really interesting. I want to pull out one little piece in John 6, verse 38 and 39, when it comes to serving God, when it comes to walking in His will. <clears throat> verse 38 and 39. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who what? Same words we see before, right? Who sent me. Verse 39. This is the will of him who what? Sent me. That of all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. Now think about that. There's something that the engaged in the kingdom of God, serving in the kingdom of God, something that they have that the non-engaged will never know. They will never know this. Because when you engage in the will of God, there's something about that. But notice he said that we are sent, that we serve to lose how many? To lose how many? None. I think that's a big statement. Those of you who do kids' ministry, you're bringing them up in the ways of God. They may get nothing else at home about Jesus Christ. You may be the only one giving it to them. An hour and 10 minutes a week. Well, of course, my staff says, an hour and 20, Jim, you preach long. But anyway. <laughs> and the whole goal of ministering and serving in that department and any department is to lose how many? None. Don't lose them to the world. Don't lose them to the culture. Don't lose any. And so you got to look at as you're ministering, whatever capacity you're in, but you're pouring in because the whole goal is lose none. When people come to the door of any one of our campuses for the first time, how many chances do we have to win that person? One. One chance to not lose that person. And so as we maneuver on our campus, whatever campus you go to, it's very important that we're very friendly, huh? Because we don't want to lose one. It's very important that I consistently give altar salvation calls, correct? Because we want to reach people for Christ. We don't want to lose any. It's a, it's a very big deal to Jesus Christ that we're, we're sent, we're servants, we're here to win people, and we don't want to lose anyone to the gates of hell. Look, look <clears throat> we have to get out of our minds that the statement, I go to church. Sorry, you don't go to church. That's a, that's a false statement. Uh-uh. The church is not this building. The church is people. The word church is so distorted, we think it's a building. No, it means an assembly of people. An assembly of people coming together for a common purpose. And so when we serve, when we're engaged like Jesus Christ, we're doing the will of Him who sent me. I have food that you do not know. And when you serve and you're part of it, doesn't it just jazz you up? Doesn't it get you excited for God and the kingdom of God that you're a part of this thing? Any amens? Am I the only one pumped up about that? Okay, good. I thought I was in the wrong place for a second there. God bless you at home for saying amen later on in this message. Now, number two. Here we go. Back to John 4. Do not judge by appearances. Now, this is one of the great Jesus statements. And if you've ever read it before, hopefully you have, let me try to give it some teeth, okay? Look at verse 35. He says, um, <clears throat> Do not say, There are yet four months. And then comes the harvest. Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields that they are white for harvest. 
question. Is Jesus looking at a field of wheat when he says that? No, I don't think he is. What's he looking at? What people? What people? The Samaritans. They're walking back. That woman has gone and talked to them and said, come and meet a man who told me everything about my life. And now they're coming back. And now Jesus is taking this object lesson. And he says, open your eyes, guys. Look up. The fields are white for harvest. When it says white for harvest, when they were white, it meant it's ripe. That's what he's saying. It's ripe for harvest. And here come this group of Samaritans. And who's out in front of the Samaritans? That woman, huh? She's leading them right back. Here she, she's bringing them. And he says, look at these things right now. Now think about this. Did the Jews ever think that the Samaritans were ripe for harvest? There's no way. They would judge them, oh, you're a mixed breed, you know, half Assyrian, half Jew, uh-uh. So you can never judge by appearances, correct? Because to judge it by appearances, they would have said, none of these people could ever come to salvation. Not a one of them, but here they come. And Jesus says, open your eyes. Look, they're coming right now. Here they are. Now, I love that he says, don't tell yourself yet in four months. Don't say it yet in four months and then the harvest. What does that mean? How do we say that? Well, we, like this. Well, you know, I'll start serving God, you know. You know, when I get the right job, finish school. I'll start serving job when, uh, serving God when I get married. You know, I'll start serving God, you know, after the kids are out of the house and I have time. And he's saying, why do you keep saying that for? The time is when? Now. The time is right now. The time to serve God is right now. Now, let me take it a step further. Have you ever just told yourself, I'm just waiting on God? Anyone ever said that? None of us? Okay, how many unholy people raise your hand? No, I'm just joking. <laughs> I'm just waiting on God. But have you ever noticed when we wait on God, we have a tendency to do nothing? Yes. Ever notice that? Does waiting on God mean we do nothing? We got in four months, I'm just waiting on God. Now watch this. Watch what the half-brother of Jesus says. Turn to James chapter 5. To your right. I think it's a big truth. James chapter 5. And James is going to talk about the farmer. Now look at verse 7. He says, Therefore be what? Patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. The farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being what? Patient about it until he gets the early and the late rains. Okay, he says be patient. We say, I'm just waiting on God. Does that mean be idle? Now watch. The farmer's being patient. He's waiting on the rains. He's waiting for these things. So what does, the farm, what does a farmer do in the meantime? Does he plant seed? Yeah. Does he weed? Yeah. Does he bring water in if there's no rain? Does he bring waters? Yeah. So is the farmer busy doing things in anticipation of a crop down the road? Yes, he is. And even when that crop comes in, does he plant more seed? He continues that. He continues. And by the way, that's a, that's a principle in tithing. You say, well, I tithe for six months. I'm good now. No, it's continuous or else the crop ends. So he's saying this to us. 
that you're always prepping for the next harvest of your life. Are you not? You're always prepping for that. You never sit back and say, well, I'm just waiting on God. No, you're, there's movement to your patience. There's movement to your waiting because you don't know and I don't know what's around the corner and how close that thing is. How many people have wait and wait and wait and it never comes in because they never are moving with God and they're never prepping in these things. You follow me on that one? So you're always moving with God. Now, back to John 4. The third bullet point is this. We are sowers and reapers. We're both. We're sowers and we are reapers. Look at verse 36, 7, and 8. It says this. Already he who reaps is receiving wages and is gathering fruit for life eternal, so that he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For in this case, the saying is true. One sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you have not labored. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. Now, what in the world is Jesus talking about here? He's saying this. When a crop of salvation comes in, when a person gets saved, was there earlier work done? Yeah. Do you remember what happened with the woman? Look back at verse, verse 25. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is what? Coming. Who is called Christ. When the one comes, he will declare all things to us. Question. Does she already have a knowledge of Messiah? So does that infer to us that someone did pre-work in that area? Yes, they did, huh? Do you know Jeremiah ministered all his life? You know how many converts he got? None. Not a one. Can you imagine? God told him, go preach, but they're not going to listen to you. Can you imagine being told that? But go preach. I'd be like, God, why would I want to do that? But that's what he did. There's always pre-work done whenever there's this, uh, there, there's this harvest. So whenever you see in regions of the world where it was pagan, it was anti-God, and all of a sudden there's an explosion of salvation, know that years before or even decades before or even up to 50 years before, people were ministering, people were praying and praying. Why is it that a, a missionary can go to one area of the world and seemingly have no success. People aren't getting saved. He spends 50, 60 years there, him and his family. Then they leave because they're old, and, and somebody comes in that region, and they start sharing the gospel, and it explodes with salvation. Why is that? Who was the most successful? The one who reaped the harvest, or the one who planted for 50 years? They both are. They both are. One sows, and one reaps, right? That's what Jesus is saying. Somebody plants, somebody harvests. And we play, those, play both those roles in our life. But here's what bugs me. Can I tell you what bugs me among many things? Yes. Haven't you ever ministered to somebody, an unsaved person? You share faith, you share faith, you share faith, you share faith. And they read, nah, nah, nah. And then you don't see them for a couple of months. They come back and go, I, I, I became a Christian. Really, what happened? Well, I was this place. This guy was talking to me, sharing these things. And I, it just made sense. And I gave my life to Christ right there. And I'm thinking... I told you that 20 times. <laughs> I, I want to get a little credit on that. Any amends on that one right there? It kind of bugs, doesn't it? I did all the work and that guy gets to harvest? No, it's, it's not fair whatsoever. Now, back to this. You're planting, you're praying because there's a harvest going to come somewhere along the way. This is one of my 
you heard me say it Sunday, they're going to say it again this Sunday, like the prayer walkers. I don't know how many of you do the prayer walk. It's once a month. It's once a month. At the end of each month, I send you an email out on Thursday. You could choose any time over the weekend or that next week. Walk your block. If you can't walk, pray at home. All you do is walk around your block and pray for the homes and people in those homes on your block. That's all you do. It's very easy. It takes you all of about 20 to 30 minutes, once a month. But what you're doing is you're breaking ground and you're planting seed. They don't even know that you're praying for their salvation. They have no idea that you're walking around destroying fortresses and strongholds to bring them to Jesus Christ. Once a month, you can go online. The QR code's there. Sign up. You'll get my email. And I walk my block. My wife walks the block at the end of every month. But I would love to see our entire church, every one of our campuses, people walk your blocks once a month because you're breaking down the devil's strongholds. Amen to that one right there? Okay, here we go. Number four. And that's this. God loves to use weak instruments to display his power. Is that true or what? How many weak instruments here tonight? Praise. Oh, good. good. This side understands. Okay, but this side, not yet. Maybe you're writing. Now watch this. Verse 39 to 42. It says, From that city, many of the Samaritans believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified. Is your testimony important? Yeah, Revelation 12, you overcome the devil by the word of your testimony. He told me all the things that I have done. So now she says, this guy told me all about my life. And remember what we said about that before? Remember what we said about that? Before, she would never share anything about her life. And now she, he, she says, you know how I've been, how I was five times a loser in marriage, how I was living with a guy. And all the, he told me all about that. She's saying it out loud, which means... He has erased her shame, and her shame has turned into her testimony. Amen? That's when you know you're really operating at full capacity. When you can take all the ugly things of your past, knowing that God has washed them away, knowing you've been forgiven, and you start sharing those things, and you're not ashamed anymore because you're giving glory to God for the transformation in your life. Amen? So she's doing that. Verse 40. So when the Samaritans came to Jesus, so they're here. Now that we're here, with, they were asking him to stay with them. That's unusual. He's a Jewish man. Remember? Remember we talked about racism last time? Anybody remember that one? God, I haven't got any bad feedback on that yet. Okay, good. You never know. And he stayed there two days. He's hanging out. They said, don't leave. Many more believe because of his word. Now they're not just believing because the woman's word. They're believing because of Jesus' word, that's right. Now they've moved from the testimony of a woman, now they themselves are into the word of God. Amen? You've moved from the testimony of someone else who is leading you to Christ, you come to Christ, and now you yourself are in the word of God. Did you catch that? I like that right there a lot. Now, verse 42, it says, And they were saying to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe. How many would be bummed out at that moment if you're the woman? Don't matter what you say anymore. We got it, okay, lady? Yeah. But it's okay. For we have heard for our yes, and know that this one is indeed the Savior of the world. Whoa. This woman, this weak instrument, broken, five time loser in marriage, living with a man up until an hour ago, no friends. And now 
God uses this weak instrument to display his power. God uses 17-year-old David to display his power to take down Goliath. God uses a poor little a young teenage girl by the name of Mary to give birth to the Messiah. God always uses weak instruments to display his power. I got time, so it's not in your notes. Turn to 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 1. Look at this. Just for those of you who are newer to the Bible, and it's a good affirming verse for you. That's a good affirming verse anytime for us. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Not in your notes, but look at verse uh, chapter 1, verse 27, 28, and 29 of 1 Corinthians. Watch what Paul writes to the Corinthians. And by the way, were the Corinthians a sinful mess? You better believe they were. Were the Corinthians the most spiritually operating gifted church in the New Testament? Yeah, or they were operating all wrong, right? So he came to straighten it out, but it's funny that they're the most sinful group, and yet they're operating the greatest spiritual gifts around. Isn't that crazy? No, yeah? Okay, good. Verse 27. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen, the things that are not so that he may nullify the things that are. And why? So that no man may boast before God. Why does God love to use the weak people of the world, us weak instruments? Because he gets the glory, doesn't he? I can't brag about it. God gets the glory in all these things. Look, there's a key thing in there, and that's this. Whenever you get yourself in a situation where you're being, there's pointed questions coming at you, challenging your faith. You ever get nervous in those moments? Don't. Because God now, if you just listen to the voice of the Spirit and watch, God now will take the weak thing of the world and he'll confound the wise. Just stay calm and trust that God is going to drop the thoughts in your mind. You will walk away and think, where did that come from? How did that come out of my mouth? That was just God. Because there's plenty of people who will try to attack Christianity with their cliches. And they're all cliches. There's no substance to them. But you stay calm. Now, I'm going um, to give you four important thoughts from this that I think are important. The first thing in your bullet point right there is that she shared what she knew. Is she a trained Bible graduate, theologian, etc.? No, she's not. She just shared what she knew, right? She shared her testimony. Come and see the man who told me all about my life. In John chapter 9, when we get there, Jesus is going to heal the blind man. Remember the blind man? And they asked the blind man, what do you have to say about Jesus? What does the blind man tell the people? Because he didn't even know Jesus. He was blind when he got, you know, Jesus left before he knew who he was. He says, you know, they say, they say he's a sinner, right? And the man says, whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. The only thing I know is once I was blind and now I, and now I see just share what you know. Just share your testimony. You don't have to be able to spit out every verse and stuff like that. Share your testimony. People are very, very challenged by a testimony because life change is a very, very um, powerful thing. Now, look at the next thing. Her relationship with her community changes. Did her relationship with her community change? That's right. When we become a Christian, shouldn't our relationship with our family and others change? 
Because why? Because they need a change or because who's changed? We have changed. Listen, Christian, we can sit in a Bible study till we're blue, but until we take the abiding word of God and we change, then it changes how we operate in our community, how we operate in the family, because we are changed. We don't say those negative things anymore. We don't give those put-downs in the family anymore. We are very friendly. We are very loving. We are very considerate. We change because that's what happened in us. God has changed us, and now our relationship with others and our community changes. And that's just fact. Now, the third bullet point is she desired others to meet Jesus. Didn't she? Look back at verse 29. What's the first thing she says? What's the first word of verse 29? Come. Who's she talking to? All the people in Samaria, hey, come on, come on. I want you to meet this guy. So she's trying to get people to meet Jesus. And then the fourth bullet point I think important is this. This is a complete contrast to the Jews in Judea. Did the Jews in Judea, which is to the south, that's Jerusalem area, did they accept Jesus? No, they rejected him. And now you come to Samaria, which is the middle part of Israel. Do they accept Jesus? Yeah. So it's a complete contrast of that right there. Now, Let's move on to the Capernaum official. As we move away from the Samaritan woman, I want to finish off this chapter because next time I want to get the, the layman at the Pool of Bethesda. <clears throat> Verse 43 to 45 says this. After two days, he went forth from there into Galilee. For Jesus himself testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans, what? Oh, that's interesting, isn't it? Because they didn't before. You see, having seen, say seen, it's a very important word there, all the things that he did in Jerusalem at the feast. So they were down in Jerusalem and they saw these signs and wonders he was doing. For they themselves also went to the feast. Okay. As Jesus leaves where he was, we're going to find out in the next verse, he's leaving Cana and he's going to Capernaum. It's an 18-mile walk that he's traveling. Capernaum is the north side of the Sea of Galilee. It's an area where we have read before that they do not accept and they do not respect Jesus, correct? He says, the place where a prophet is without honor except in his hometown. And that's a really truthful thing. When you rise up in position of authority, if, if you are a person, you grew up together with people, or you were a young kid and you rise up, they have a tendency not to respect you, right? Because they've known you since you were a kid. And that's the whole idea right here. You're, you're one of us. You know, we saw you grow up. We saw, we saw we, and this and that. So, you know, so they don't respect him. <clears throat> First thought is this. He leaves a thriving, growing ministry in Samaria. Does he not? To go to where? A place where what has happened before? They've rejected him. What do we typically do as Christians? We want to go and say where it's thriving, where everybody's like-minded, where everybody's like me, and I want to live in a place like that. We're all the same. And Jesus says, no, I'm going to leave that place because I'm going to go over here because they need me too. See, we Christians, we get, I don't know what happens in our head. 
We want to get away from, I just got to get away from this and that. And you listen to too much news and how bad it is. Look, it was worse than the Roman Empire. And Paul, he drove his Volkswagen right in the middle of it. Right? So he leaves this thriving area of ministry. He's going right smack dab where they've rejected him. This is the place. You know where he's going? You know what Capernaum is? It's the place, remember in Luke chapter 4, when he stands up, he goes in the, in the synagogue there, and the remnants of the synagogue is still there. The deepest foundation, which has been built upon other times, is still there from where Jesus was. Now, that's where he was in there, and he opens a scroll of Isaiah, and he begins to read. Remember what he read? The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, for he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to preach liberty to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And then what does he say? Today, this scripture, what I just read to you guys, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing presence. What did he just tell him? I'm that guy. I'm the Messiah. I'm the one you've been waiting for. And then what do they want to do after he does that? Pray, let's worship you. Do they want to do that? No, they, they take him, and they take him to a hill. And what do they want to do? They want to throw him down a cliff. Remember that? That's where, that's where he's come back to. The last time I was here, they want to throw me off a cliff. So, you know, can you imagine that? Can you imagine? You're, can you imagine, those of you at the Riverside campus, opening day, launch, you know, first thing you say, and they want to throw Dylan off a cliff or something like that on opening day. <laughs> Because that's pretty much what happened to Jesus last time he was there, opening day of the church. Let's throw him over a cliff. And he's coming back to that spot right now. We don't do things like that. But Jesus does. Because he knows that he was sent for a specific purpose. Now, question, wider angle. Why does Jesus go back there? Watch this. Turn to Matthew chapter 4. Here's another reason. Jesus walks prophetically. There are statements that are made prophetically that Jesus is fulfilling. And I, what is it, 330 uh, prophetic fulfillments he fulfilled in his life from the Old Testament? Now watch this statement, because Matthew says this in Matthew 4, 12 through 16. Now Matthew, his gospel is written to Jewish people. Do you know why that's obvious? Because he uses a lot of what? Old Testament verses. You wouldn't use a lot of Old Testament verses if you're writing to Romans or whatever. He does. And that's why in Matthew's gospel, he'll never use the word God. He'll always use the kingdom of heaven because he won't use the word God because it would offend the Jews. So those are little tidbits right there. Now watch one of the Old Testament uh, prophecies he pulls out about Jesus. Matthew 4, verse um, 12 through 16 says this. Now when Jesus heard that John had been taken into custody, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he came and settled in Capernaum. There we go again which is by the sea, in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. This was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of Gentiles, the people who were sitting in darkness saw a great, a great light. And those who were sitting in the land and the shadow of death Upon them a light dawned. Why did Jesus come back to Capernaum? Why did he come back to Capernaum? They want to kill him last time there. Because they're in darkness. And they need the light. And he leaves a thriving ministry in Samaria to go right back to where they want to kill him. 
because he has love for people, because he cares about people. Now, back to John 4. Let's finish up this story. 46. Therefore he came again to Cana of Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And there was a royal official whose son was sick at Capernaum. Now we introduce this royal official. This is, by royal means, he's an uppity up. He's a man of influence. He's got wealth. He's got privilege. He's got all this stuff. So we know he's in a cat. If it was a caste system, he'd be a higher than, than average person. Verse 47. When he heard that Jesus had come out of Judea into Galilee, he went to him and was imploring him to come down and to heal his son, for he was at the point of death. Now, does pain level the playing field? You better believe it. It doesn't matter how rich the guy is, how much influence he has. When he used the word, he was imploring Jesus. It's in the imperfect sense. It means it's ongoing, ongoing, ongoing. So he's begging Jesus, please, please. He won't leave Jesus alone. Please, please. Can you imagine a man of high influence, wealth, position, everything, and you find him just begging Jesus? Because pain always levels the playing field. It doesn't matter what we have because money and influence doesn't solve everything. There are moments in time when the, le- when the playing field is just leveled. Now, watch what Jesus tells. The man's begging. My son's dying. Please come. Watch what Jesus says. So Jesus said to him, unless you people see signs and wonders, you simply will not believe. Question. Besides me, does that sound a little bit callous? It's kind of cold, huh? And it's kind of weird. Why would Jesus make a statement like this? The guy's begging. His son's dying. Unless you people see signs. So what's going on here? Why would Jesus say that? Well, the answer is found in, look at verse 48. Unless you people, is the word people, is that italicized? It's not in the original language. It's added there to give you a little bit more understanding. So leave out people. Let's read it again. Unless you see signs. Now, the word you in the Greek is plural. So Jesus isn't talking just to that guy. Who's he talking to? Everybody. Now, let me show you why that makes perfect sense. Now, go back and look at verse 45 again. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans received him having what? Having what? Oh, all all these Galileans. Now that you've seen the signs I did back in Jerusalem at the feast, now you're going to believe? You see what he's saying? So now when you come back to verse 48, unless you, plural, all you people here, see signs, you just don't believe. So now he's questioning him, said, when I was here last time, you wanted to kill me. But you were, when we were down in, in Jerusalem during the feast, you saw me come perform signs, and now all of a sudden, you're going to believe in me? That's what he's asking them. Did you see that, or do I need to say it again? You got it? Not at me. Please, not at me if you got that. Okay, good. All right, now, <clears throat> verse 49 to 54. Let's drive it home. The royal official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, Go, your son lives. The man believed the what? Remember that. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and started off. As he was now going down, his slaves met him, saying, 
that his son was living. So he's, he's nearing home or somewhere, and they had come out, and he said, your son's living. He's okay now. Watch verse 52. So he inquired of them the hour when he began to get better. When did my son start getting better? Then they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. What time is the seventh hour? It's 1 p.m. If your son's sick and dying, and it's 1 p.m. in the afternoon, Jesus said, go, your son lives. You know you'd walk that mileage back in that same day, wouldn't you? Wouldn't you? I'm going to go get to my son. This is the next day. This is the next day. What's going on? What's up with that? The only thing I can think of is this. Look back at verse 50. He said, go, your son lives. It's almost like Jesus says, just go carry out the business you had to perform. Don't worry about your son. I got it taken care of. It's kind of like that, isn't it? And so the next day after he's carried out the rest of his business, can you imagine the faith that took? The trust that took? Okay, if you say he's okay, he's okay. Then the next day, he's heading home, and the servant's going, hey, your, your, your boy's okay. It's almost like, and what time was that? Almost like, you know, yeah, because I know what time. What, what time was it? 1 p.m. Yeah, figured. Jesus did that. Jesus did. Now, <clears throat> let me read on. So the father knew that it was at the hour in which Jesus said to him, your son lives, and he himself believed and his whole household. Now, believed? Now, first, wait, wait, wait. First it says in verse 50, it says he believed the what? The word. Okay. First, okay, I believe Jesus' word. My son's going to get healed. But now in verse 53, it says he himself believed. Now he's jumped all the way. And the word believe in the gospel of John is the key word, is it not? It doesn't mean, oh, I believe there's a God. It means I jump in two feet first, deep in, all the way. I carry my cross. I surrender what the Word of God says. That's what I live. That's what's going on. I believe His Word, but now I believe in Him. This is proof. And the gospel is the seven signs. The gospel is the seven signs. So the sign takes a moment. Now, <clears throat> let me finish reading verse 54. This again is a, is a second sign that Jesus performed when he had come out of Judea into Galilee. Okay, I'm going to ask a question. Let's see if you caught it. The man believed, right? Who else believed? What? Oh, his whole family. His family. I've been, I've been a Christian 42 years. You will rarely, rarely find a home where the wife is a believer and all the kids are believers and dad is not a believer. You'll rarely find that. What you'll find is those kids, maybe one believes, maybe, but the other not going to believe. Now more and more, obviously, our culture is trying to nullify the presence of a father in the family. And I, it upsets me. I don't even like to watch any sitcoms where they make the father look like a bumbling idiot. I don't like that. I don't like to watch anything that makes, uh, that just reduces a man into some kind of a sissy rip. I just can't stand that. But 
as the father goes, so goes the family. That's a fact. And look, I understand in a divorce situation or, or that God does a special grace. You, as a wife, as a mom, you raise those kids. Because I can look back at Abraham and Sarah, and Abraham was disobedient to God. But Sarah did the right thing. She did the right thing. And we know in Corinthians it says the children are sanctified through the believing parent. But as the father goes, so goes the family. Um, Amari Bolivia. Her mom and dad weren't Christians, and then they get saved. Both get saved. Her and all her siblings are saved. All saved. I didn't grow up in a Christian home. They started sharing with me, witness to me, and then my family, my sisters, and then I got saved. Uh, my mom probably got saved about the same time. My dad, I got to lead him later on to the Lord about 10 years later in the hospital, Corona Regional Emergency Room. But I became a Christian. I meet, I meet Olivia in church. She's a Christian. We get married. We have kids. All of our kids, imperfect as they are, they all serve God. They all follow God. Their spouses all serve and follow God. My grandchildren, are being raised up in Christian homes. Christian homes. Olivia and I had our kids in church within two weeks of their birth. I'm not even exaggerating that. They've been in church all their life. And, I, and, and when I hear a Christian parent say, well, I don't want to force my teenager to come to church. I always tell them, I go, well, if they don't want to go to school, you're going to force them or what? You're not going to force them to go to school? Isn't church more important? Isn't spiritual life more important? Yeah. I would also say, so if your kid doesn't want to eat the vegetables, just wants milkshakes all day, you go, okay, give him milkshakes all day. No, you got to be a parent. you got to be a parent. And parents, as a parent, you make hard calls. How many know that, huh? You have to make hard calls because you're the parent. But as the father goes, so goes the family. So now, my, my kids, their spouses, all Christian, all serving God, and now I got these grandkids, of which when I can't find my wife in the store, I just go to the little kids section. <laughs> because I know where she's at. She's in there, the section where the little outfits are all, I, I know where she's at, I can't find her, I know where she's at. She goes, look what I found for so-and-so. Yeah, it's great. But we, we pray at night, Olivia and I, and one of the things that we always pray is I pray for my grandkids that I have, the grandkids on the way, I got one on the way now, number five, and the ones that aren't even conceived yet. Because I know I got more coming. I better have more coming. <laughs> but I pray for all. We, we pray for all of them. You know, because I as the father, I as the lead, as the father goes, so goes the family. And that's just a fact. And that's a fact. That's not pressure, guys. It's a great privilege and a great responsibility that I got to be the cycle breaker and the cycle maker in this family. As the father goes, so goes the family. The man gets saved and his household. And that's the way it works. That's the way it works. Amen. Let's pray. I'm done. Father, we thank you, Lord, for um, your word tonight.
Thank you for your goodness to us, God. In all you do. Thank you that we got to know you and Lord, that we get to share your word and we get to be like that Samaritan woman. All our old shame and all the old brokenness, God, we use for our testimony. Thank you, Father, that you are moving in our life and we don't have to wait four months. We can be active in our walk with you. Thank you, God. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. If you need prayer or dedicated your life to Christ, please reach out to us on our social media, on Facebook and Instagram at NBCCNorco. Or email us at hello at NBCC.com. Thank you for listening. Don't forget to share and subscribe to this podcast.